Welcome to the Highlands Current Podcast. I'm Chip Rowe, the editor of The Current. In each episode, our reporters will take you behind the scenes as they speak with residents of the Highlands about their interests, passions, and adventures. Now, you may know April is National Poetry Month. In 2021, I took the opportunity to speak with James Hoke, who is a poet who lives in Garrison. He's also been a professor of creative writing at Ramapo College in New Jersey since 2006. His most recent collection, Last Pawn Shop in New Jersey, was published in February 2022 by LSU Press. We talked a little bit about the nature of poetry and how he comes up with ideas and construction and all these sorts of topics. Here is our conversation. When did you think poetry is what I want to do? I was 19. Really? Yeah, the first time I read a poem out loud to a group of people. And what was the situation? Uh, I was at the Middle Eastern restaurant in Philadelphia, and there was an upstairs bar. And I had been to so many punk shows that when you walk into a kind of open mic situation in a punk show, you sign your name thinking you're getting on the mailing list. And I accidentally signed up for the open mic. <laughs> I thought I was signing up for the mailing list, you know, because back in the day, that's what you would do is you sign up for the mailing list. So the guy, the organizer got up there and they said, and now it's James Hoke's turn. And he's from, you know, Gollingswood, New Jersey. You know, he read off my address. <laughs> because <laughs> I thought they were mailing me stuff. So um, I wrote my address down and everything and uh, zip code. And then I got up and because, you know, when you're 19, you sort of, you don't have a lot of poems, so you can carry every single one of them with you, you know? And you, so you'd always walk around with all your poems just in case you got hit by a train that they would find the great works of the 19-year-old James Hope, you know, that there'd be like, that they survive, you know? So you kept them with you at all times. So I just got up and I read one poem, but and the poem wasn't very good. Uh, kind of a sing-songy poem that I wrote about a jazz trio in, from a bar in, called Bacchanal in, in South Philly. And it was a great place. And um, it was uh, just a little poem, a little ode. But I just remember feeling this overwhelming emotion come through me. And it, it, it was like... All like all the corny stuff about catharsis, or I just knew I was inside my own skin. I knew exactly what I was going to do. And I'd been writing songs and playing guitar poorly for a number of years. And uh, I remember coming, going back to college and hanging out with my friends who were, you know, real musicians. And they said, you know, James, what are you going to do with your life? <laughs> you know, and because at that point I'd, my expertise was eating strombolis and uh, sitting around on couches and talking philosophy. So I said, uh, I think I'm going to be a poet. And uh, my friend who was teaching me how to play guitar said, I can see that, you know, and said, and I, and I, that's, I really felt like that moment where I stood up and I read my own poem was really kind of a life-changing moment. I knew right then. And so I just decided to do it. And I, I, uh, I had no training. I just was, I liked lyrics, I liked songs, I liked bands, but I couldn't sing and I, I couldn't play guitar very well, but I liked words and uh, I just kept doing it on my own. 
And then I realized, you know, you could study this in college, you know, and that, that sort of blew my mind because I was studying philosophy and I didn't think you could, we didn't have any creative writing program. And I just didn't think that, that it was sort of a useless endeavor to study literature if you're going to write it, you know? <laughs> and then I realized, hey, maybe I should really study people that actually know how to do this well. And that's when I started reading and being a student of poetry. And that happened pretty much right after the sort of breakthrough moment when I was in my 19, 20, 21 years old. Yeah. I, you know, what was really, really great. And I, I don't think this can happen anymore is I really felt like I had a kind of naivete and delusion and nobody checked it. And I thought, Hey, there's a reading in Memphis. Sure. Let's figure out a way to get to Memphis and we'll go there. Right. And, and I'll read for 15 minutes with a famous poet or whatever, or yeah, I've got no problem talking about poetry to a group of Lehigh University students, even though like I didn't have my undergraduate degree. I just felt like traveling around the East Coast, going to po you know open houses, coffee shops, up and down the East Coast, New York and Boston, hanging out with bands and doing that, doing that kind of thing was just the life of the, of, of the way it was. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize that there was a whole world of mentorship and connection that is that is you know longer that is more complicated and more developed than simply hanging out with a bunch of artists but i think social media would keep you from doing something like that because you feel people would be too critical yeah absolutely like you they would think oh you're naive or you call you a poser or you call you deluded you know and all that was true but there was a sense that you had relationships, you had friendships and you connected and that was enough. And then at some point you woke up and realized, you know, I really have to study the Shakespeare guy. I really got to study Keats. <laughs> I really better read a few of these things yeah. and, and not just my friends, you know, I really have to understand this deeply. And that was really, and then, and I started doing that. And then I said, you know, maybe I should go to graduate school. And that's what I did. It took me a long time for that for, for that to happen. I didn't go to graduate school school until I was thirty, uh, which was a fairly typical age for a writer. So, you, philosophy was undergrad, and then mm -hmm. the fine, master of fine arts. Yeah, I did a bunch of things. I was uh, I meandered around quite a bit. Well, you uh, said you were a shepherd in one of your bios. Is that <laughs> really? Did you just make? Is that a poetic thing you made up or what? No, no, no. That I actually heard it cheap on the. The Navajo Nation Reservation. Yeah, there's this place called Big Mountain, which is disputed lands between the Navajo and the Hopi. And it's uh, a very strange kind of political human rights affair. But I went up there for a couple of months and herded sheep. Oh, funny. Yeah. So with some, li living in a Hogan and, you know, with grandma. And um, then I rode a motorcycle back. Oh, fun. From Arizona to Pittsburgh. I probably was like 25 at the time, 23, 25. And, you know, I, I meandered around. I worked for some human rights groups. I worked in a house for the homeless in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother passed away and left me a little bit of money. And I decided to finish my undergraduate degree because I wanted to go to graduate school. I wanted mm -hmm. to get back into poetry and I wanted to go to graduate school. And I felt like I had to do that because I, I walked into the uh, head of the creative writing, the director of the creative writing program with my poems and said, I'd like to go to graduate school. And he said, do you have an undergraduate degree? And I said, no, but I see in your application that under 
you know, special circumstances, you will take a student into a graduate program who doesn't have an undergraduate degree. And he said, yeah, but that would have to be an extraordinary case. And I said, well, wait till you read my poems. <laughs> so then you went back to get your advanced. Yeah, that didn't work out too well. <laughs> well, the hubris, you know, it's, it's hubris, but it's also just a sense of like, I can do this, you know? Mm -hmm. And if I had the kind of insecurity or self-consciousness that a lot of young people suffer from, I don't th that fear of failure, I don't think I'd be a poet. I think it would have paralyzed me. I needed to be a little delusional, a little, a little naive mm -hmm. in order to press through the initial rejections and problems that, that, that occur with writing. And, and I needed to do that. So then um, I went back, finished my degree. I taught at a school for children with dyslexia. And that was my first real teaching gig. And uh, that, was, that was really quite a learning experience. But I felt the same way when I got in front of a first time I taught a class. I said, I was very nervous and I was like sick to my stomach every day. But I remember standing up there and said, this feels completely natural. Hmm. And it was the same thing with poetry. I was like, I can do this. This is good. I got this. How do and you then, teach poetry? Do students uh, like get it right away and others are never going to be poets? Do they struggle with it? Or how do you, I mean, or you just tell them, or do you just read the great poets? Well, I, I give them, you know, I think that often we, what we do is we, we try to write poems that resemble the poems that we most admire. And I think what I try to do is find a poem. I try to find for the student a poem that they've been trying to write or a poem that's in conversation with the poems that they are writing. Maybe it's a voice, maybe it's content, maybe it's form, but there's something about, maybe it's tone. There's something about when I listen, I feel like ultimately what I do is like, I'm like a poetry matchmaker. You give me a reader or a lover of poems, I can find them the poet or the poem that's going to make them lovers of poetry. So what I try to do is just match people, you know? And so I match, I, I have a lot of students and I say, oh, I see you're writing about X. Have you ever read Sylvia Plath? Have you ever read Emily Dickinson? Have you ever read Elizabeth Bishop? And I say, I want you, and I'll just give them like a handful of poems. I'll give them 10 poems and say, come back to me on Monday and tell me which one really you think really moves you. And then they, they pick one. I said, oh, try these five. And then they said, oh, I like three of them. I said, oh, okay. Now I have about 200 years of poetry to teach you because what you've laid out here right. an aesthetic sensibility that exists in, the, in 2021 that I can trace back to Walt Whitman or Emily Dickinson in the American tradition, or I can go back to Keats or Thomas Wyatt or, or whomever in the, in the British tradition, or Pablo Neruda or Cesar Vallejo and a Latin American tradition. I, I know where you sound and I know the sort of the ranges. And then from there, they start building a kind of genealogy. I try to teach three things every class. I don't know what they're going to be until I see the students work and or a pattern I see in the classroom and say, okay, I want to feed this or I want to break this one or the other, right? Whatever it is or challenge them, right? But I think what I try to do is, is get them closer to speech. If I can get them closer to speech, I feel like I can get them closer to their inner lives. 
And if I get them closer to their inner lives, they're going to say real things. And how to say those real things, that's craft, that's technical. But I, if they continue to sound like somehow distant from a voice that is powerful and engaging and feels like a person speaking, it doesn't have to feel authentic. I don't like that term necessarily. It just has to feel real. It has to feel real. Whatever the real is, it has to feel that feel real. And I think we all know it when we hear it. And whether that is a persona poem, whether that's a autobiographical poem, doesn't really matter. They just have to be closer to a speech that we want to listen to. So the goal, when you say closer to speech, the assumption is that poetry is meant to be said aloud. Yeah, I don't I don't think of poetry as writing. I don't think of <laughs> I don't think of Mick Jagger as singing. I think poetry is speech and in speech we do things that we ordinarily would not do in writing. And I think those disruptions and those, you know, oddities that we do in speech become pleasures and engagements in in poetry. Hmm. In writing they're a distraction, you know. But to me, it's, you know, whether it's a plain spokenness, like a Frost, or whether it's an ecstatic speech, like Plath, maybe, or Gerard Manley Hopkins, you know, it doesn't really matter. But that sense of that there's some voice here, that there's some voice that's speaking to us, and we want to listen to it. I think that's important, because that's where you get a tone. I think poetry's gotten through the ear. So much of poetry is about tone. Tone has gotten through the ear. Tone is emotion and what the speaker knows about emotion. And that, that's where you get your irony and your sarcasm and humor is what the speaker knows about what they're saying as they're saying it. They know something about the emotion and you hear that. So the act of reading a poem on the page is actually incarnating a voice inside you and uttering it inside your head or out loud, depending on where you are. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you say it, you start to hear that voice and you start to embody that voice. In a way, we don't know what Shakespeare's voice sounded like. We only know how we sounded when we said those words. But if you don't own the language, and actors know this too, if you don't own the language, the language fails, right? Mm -hmm. So you have, to, you have to somehow step inside the voice of a poem, whether you're writing it or whether you're reading it, and become the language, right? You let the language be yours. I think the biggest problem we have in the reading of poetry, as well as in the writing of poetry, is the idea that you do not possess it, that it's something like, I don't know what the author is saying. You know, of course you don't. You're not listening. You're not listening to yourself, you know? As soon as you realize it is you saying it, not the author, right? That yeah. just the voice, that the voice is like a score on the page and you're just embodying it and playing it inside your own body. You're incarnating it, right? and performing it. Once that happens, you realize that, oh, I hear it much better. Oh, yeah, I start yeah. to feel it. Oh, the hairs on my neck stand up when I think of this line. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get there is not by witnessing someone else do it. I think it's, it's for me, it's about getting people inside those poems. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm more interested, I'm in, interested in the intensity of a poem and the intimacy of a poem. Hmm. Uh, as I get older, I favor intimacy. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, I favored intensity. How do you start a poem, though? I mean, you stare at the blank page like any writer would, or do you have snippets like a musician might write the you know, bridge and then build from that to write the song? Or I, I am so old 
I have done it any any number of ways. I went for walks by the river. I've fallen into the river. I started with snippets of language. I've, poems just appeared to me like out of nowhere, and I started writing them and finished them in 20 minutes. I've taken 10 years to write a poem. Huh. I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Well, you, do you speak up aloud as you're writing it? I mean, is that... Oh, uh, yeah, all the time. huge part of the process. You're reading it aloud to... Yeah, I, I think... Unlike, unlike prose, necessarily. Well, you know, they say when you read quietly to yourself, uh, this will make you slightly self-conscious. You move the inside of your mouth as if you're speaking when you look over words. Huh. You, you make the, your muscles, what they call the articulatory apparatus, actually are moving as if you're speaking when you're reading. Huh. It, 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 and reading I, silently, like reading to yourself. Yeah, when you're so. reading silently, that your tongue, like you, the air in your, your, the way your body is sort of feeling is like, oh, are you speaking now? Right? Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, uh, I encourage my students and encourage, you know, and I, myself, I, I definitely say the poem out loud because I will hear places where the poem fails the ear. And if you fail the ear, you're probably, it's probably something wrong with your syntax or your diction, but sometimes you don't know it because it looks really smart. You know, it looks like, oh, I did this. And yeah. you're like, you know, I'm going through a manuscript now. I have a new book coming out in 2022. Oh, okay. Plug it right here. Yeah. What is it called? Last Pawn Shop in New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. So it comes from the title, uh, the title poem, which is Self-Portrait as Lance, Last Pawn Shop in New Jersey. Okay. And I just, I've been thinking about identity and I sort of think of myself as like, you could walk into my life or walk into me and it'd be like, there's that lamp from, you know, <laughs> 1976. <laughs> so I never could get it to work right. Yeah, exactly. And there's a cheap guitar. And, you know, <laughs> and I just feel like, you know, I'm more of a collection of experiences and things than I am, you know, a self-governing entity. Let's put it that way. I don't really feel like I'm in charge of anything. I feel much, I feel closer to, and this is one of the things in, in the book is that it's really about, I really feel like closer to ground than figure. And what I mean by that is I feel closer to the stage than the characters on the stage. Mm. And maybe it's being a parent where you feel like these characters are walking in and out of your life and you're sort of just set design, you know, you're like, <laughs> and financier. Yeah. You're, you're not the producer. You're the, you're, not, you're the financier. Yes. Right. And usually you're the, you're, they're looking for another one, you know, <laughs> you're you know, very good. A good financier. You're always sure. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, but I feel like, you know, like part of my job as a, as a, as a parent is just to provide a stage and an environment for all these creatures to live in. And uh, uh, hoof marks and all, they, they walk right through my life. That's really the idea of the self as place as opposed to, you know, a thing occupying space. Right. Yeah. Do you think the pandemic, has that affected the poems that maybe would be in this book or poems that you're reading? I mean, the isolation, is that going to be like people are going to recognize the poetry written in these couple of years or? Well, as, as my on that. when the pandemic happened, it's weary on us, us family folk, the, pan, the pandemic for sure, right? But my single poet friends with no kids were like, wait a minute, 
spend three months, three months alone, just reading poems, check, you know, they're, <laughs> I'll do that. I, you know, I, I think the pandemic has been in poetry has been, you know, people have taken it on right away and, and wrote from that note, from that sort of uh, pitched fever of the pandemic, pandemic and that isolation as a way of sort of surviving it. But I also think that it's unburdened us from kind of the business side, the career side of poetry, the traveling, the conferences, the cocktail hours, the, you know, the parties, the book parties, the everything, the reading series, you know, it sort of unburdened us a little bit and it's allowed us to communicate differently, I think. And I think that's good. Yeah. Uh, that's been good for us to slow down a little bit on pushing, you know, the sort of the avid careerism that happens in, in any art. When we spoke to Ruth Dannon, she had said for the previous installment of, of National Poetry Month, she said that she felt there'd been like a huge resurgence in poetry in the last couple of years, like pre-pandemic. Yeah. I just wondered if you agreed with that, if there's signs that, to you that people are more engaged with poetry or it's more yes. popular. I don't know. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, the amount of times I'm watching a television show or and then I, I hear a reference to, you know, T.S. Eliot, or that's the title of the episode is an <clears throat> Eliot quote, you know, and you're like, yeah. what? I think that through spoken word, you know, what we used to call performance poetry, you know, spoken word, slam poetry, these are all derivatives of the same idea of the oral tradition of poetry, but they're all kind of important. There is a sense that young people especially would like to define themselves against the larger culture. And what I mean by against is like in relation to, uh, they want to define themselves as separate, both of and apart of the, of the, from the culture. So they're both of the culture and apart from the culture. And they're trying to, to deal, I think social media has produced that kind of dissonance where people are like, yeah, I am like you, but I don't want to be absorbed by you. And that's very much a, a modernist idea. You know, I mean, T.S. Eliot specifically wrote about, you know, embodied the idea of the, the plural identity. And we, we call it now intersectionality, right? Right. Whitman says, you know, multitudes, right? I'm filled with multitudes. And Eliot went on to voice that in a kind of very profound display of uh, a single voice adapting to multiple texts. And that people would now say, yeah, I'm part this brand and I'm part that brand, you know? And I think that the, I think young people are sort of, I think that's part of it. But there's also that notion of, I need something immediate. The impatience of a generation raised on social media that can't sit through novels and they need to find their meaning in a very immediate way. I think it's great for poetry and I think it's great that they're finding that in poetry. At the same time, you know, you have to learn how to sit and listen and be bored, you know, otherwise you could never get your driver's license, you know, <laughs> you have to learn how to sit in the DMV. Yeah. It's still, man. Yeah. Uh, how to deal with silence, how to be comfortable with silence. And I think poetry is probably good at that for very short periods of time. Mm -hmm. I think, and people sort of, I think are going to it for that reason. Thank you for listening to the Highlands Current Podcast. This episode was produced by Zach Rogers and recorded and edited by Johnny Taylor of Beacon AV Lab. 
If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, leave us a review on your listening app of choice, and consider becoming a member of The Current. The paper and website and this podcast are offered free to the community, paid for with support from our readers and listeners. To join for as little as $24 annually, visit highlandscurrent.org join. That's highlandscurrent.org join. Or catch up anytime on the latest news at highlandscurrent.org or pick up a copy of the print paper every Friday. Thanks again. I'm Chip Rowe, editor of The Current, and we'll see you next time.